All right, before we uh, jump in, uh, why don't we pray and ask the Lord to, to bless our time this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your goodness. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, as we continue to unpack um, the mysteries of your salvation, the mysteries of your character this morning, I ask that you would guide all of us, that you would guide our hearts and our minds, um, that we might go closer to you, that today might not be a time for um, ourselves, for gaining glory for ourselves, for showing how much we know, but um, instead opening our hearts to, to hear you speak to us as we learn more about you. Lord, thank you for this opportunity, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, I uh, fought another puffer fish, so uh, I lost again. Um, so I'm a little puffy this morning, um, but hopefully I can still see all of you. Uh, so if you raise your hand, I can still get you. Um, I have a couple of questions before we get started, because uh, I feel like it's... We, we just want to keep reviewing and catching up and making sure we know what we're talking about. Um, what did we talk about last week? Does anyone remember what we talked about? Grace. Talked about grace. Yeah. Um, we spent the whole time mostly talking about uh, the Roman Catholic definition of grace um, and how they define it, how they work with it, the things that it could lead to. Um, do you guys remember how the Roman Catholics define grace? Jonathan? By works, they define it as, like, they define the word suffer, that's really right in front of you, as a vehicle for grace to get into you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they define the supper as a vehicle for grace to get into you. What does that tell you about grace itself? What is it? That it would be something material. Okay, yeah, that it's a substance, that it's something that you could kind of hold or how they define it specifically, right, is the Roman Catholics will call grace um, a supernatural gift that God gives, right? A supernatural gift that God gives. Um, And while initially we might say, well, that's not too bad, Right? What are the problems with calling it a supernatural gift? What does that lead to? Jonathan, you, you, let, let someone else answer. Um, what do you guys think? Working to maintain it. What's that? Working to maintain it. Okay, working to maintain it. Yeah, because if it's a gift, what the Roman Catholics will then say is you could lose the gift. What else? What other things does that lead to if you start to call it a substance or a gift or a... Something that you can lose. Is it fair to say then it's not free? Grace has to be free or it's not grace. They do call it free gift. Well, is it though? I mean, if you have to do some work to maintain that, then it's not free. That's a good point. Yeah, if you have to maintain the gift, then maybe that means there's an aspect of it where it's not really free. It's a gift, but there's conditions attached. Jonathan? It might be to people trying to afford it. And what's the dollar for this? I was in a bit. What are we talking about today? We're talking about grace. Yeah, it might lead people to think that you need to store up as much of it for yourself, right? Why do you go to supper? Why do you go to mass? Why do you pray? Why do you pray to uh, uh, Mary and continue to do all the penances and the Hail Marys and make sure you do all the the things here on earth, right? Because you're trying to make sure you are in God's good graces, that you collect as much, you go to supper, you receive it. Um, and it becomes a very works-based, a very you-centered uh, approach to grace. 
right? Because instead of it being an orientation of the Lord towards you, it's something that you are now working towards. How do, how do we as Reformed Protestant Christians define grace? You can whisper it or you can say it out loud. Unmerited favor. favor. What's merit? We started to talk about this last week a little bit. Jonathan? Merit. So if you look at Islam, their favor with Allah, their God, is merited. Their grace is merited grace. It's merited favor. Mm -hmm. Unmerited favor is... God is what happens when God says, Does the Jesus go all hand over us? Yeah. Charlie? Merit is a reward like earned entitlement, maybe based on something achieved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul talks about it like this. Oh, sorry, Joy. Were you raising your hand, Joy? No? Just okay. Um, <laughs> Paul talks about it like this. I believe it's in um uh Galatians, where he's, he's talking about Abraham and how Abraham received righteousness. And he makes this illustration of, of a worker who works the whole day and then they receive their wages. That's not grace, right? That's instead merit because he worked all day. He receives his wages, gets his paycheck. That's works, right? That's not, uh, that's not grace. He's not receiving it because he's unmerited it. He's receiving it because he's earned it, because he's done the work. And Paul says, that's not what happened with Abraham. Abraham didn't do anything. Instead, he believed, and that was counted to him as righteousness. That's grace, because that's not merit. That's grace. So one of the ways that we talk about this is law and gospel. Right? Law is works. It's works-based. Gospel is grace-based. And so when we're looking at Scripture, we keep those separate because when you start to blend them, when you start to blend law and gospel, you get Roman Catholicism. Because now you have works and grace somehow commingling and working together where, yes, you receive this gift of God, but you have to do your part. Right? You have to fulfill your end of the bargain in order to keep grace. When we define grace, we don't call it a gift. Um, we don't call it a substance, we call it favor. And the reason we do that is because it's, it's a stance of God towards you that he looks at you and views you with love, admiration, favor, joy, acceptance, delight, that these are all parts of how the Lord views you and accepts you as his, even though you've done nothing to deserve that. So that's why we call it unmerited favor. Because it's favor, right? God stands towards you, but it's not because you've done something. It's not, well, I've, you know, I've been a good person. I've mostly kept God's law. I'm, you know, I'm pretty good. I, I love my wife. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't lie. So therefore, God favors me. That's merited favor. What we say is, I've lied, I've stolen, I've cheated, I've been selfish, I've been horrible to my spouse, I have treated my kids poorly, I'm a constant sinner who always returns to sin, and yet the Lord looks at me with love. That's unmerited favor. That's grace. Um, And the reason that we make such a distinction is because 
as we talk about covenant theology, we've talked about a covenant of works. Right? Adam was in a covenant of works. And that was important because whatever Adam earned, merited, gets passed down to his descendants. With Jesus, we need Jesus' covenant with God to be a covenant of works so that whatever he earns is passed down to us. So in covenant theology, right, we believe that we're in a covenant of grace, but that Jesus was in a covenant of works. He earned righteousness, and we receive it as a gift of grace. Does that make sense? Jonathan, do you have a question? So I just noticed right here that if you look at this, our grace is unmerited favor, but on the part of Jesus, you could call it merited favor because he got that grace and then gave it to us because he did so You wouldn't call it grace, though, with Jesus, would you? No. Because it's not unmerited favor. Yeah. Jesus earned... It's merit. Right. It's just straight-up merit. Um, but then it becomes grace as it's passed down. Right. Yeah. It's it's gracious for us. But like, if you look at this, then all of the grace in the Bible actually begins at Jesus' merit. Of course it does. You're right. Every part of the unmerited stuff in any story begins with merit. It does. I think, I feel like the two go together in that particular point. That's very insightful. That's a good point. Now, Jonathan's point is that every every time we look at grace, like it has to start somewhere, right? It starts with Jesus' righteousness. That even in the Old Testament, even when God is making this promise to Adam and Eve, your offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent and his heel will be bruised. That is the Lord looking forward to Jesus' righteousness. Looking forward to when Jesus will come and fulfill the covenant, the covenantal obedience that Adam should have done. Adam should have crushed the serpent. He should have drove that thing back into, you know, crushed it, killed it, made a stew out of it, something. Um, That's what he should have done and protected the garden and fulfilled the obligations, not eating the tree. God says, well, you didn't do it, but someone who comes after you will. So that's where the Lord sets this promise, but that promise is still founded upon someone doing what Adam should have done. The grace is still founded upon somebody's works just not ours anymore. Now it's on Christ. Um, so there's there's actually a little bit of a, what's the word, a wrinkle that I want to throw. Um, because we call it unmerited favor, but there's uh, one theologian called Klein who makes a little bit of a distinction, and he says, you know, it's, it's good to talk about unmerited favor, but it's more like demerited favor. And what he means is that it's not simply that we don't deserve it. It's that we've done everything to not deserve it. We've actively demerited the favor. So Klein's definition is just to push push the envelope a little bit further, just to be a little bit more clear that unmerited leaves it a little bit vague, right? It leaves it a little bit open to say, well, yes, we don't deserve it, but that doesn't mean that we're bad. It's like, you know, you give a gift to your your son even though he hasn't done anything special, but he's just existing. 
you would still call that maybe unmerited favor, but if your son has been, you know, throwing rocks at cars and kicking dogs and, and spray painting graffiti on the side of your house, and you give him a hundred bucks, that's actively demerited favor. That's what client is trying to push and say, that's more like what we experience in the covenant is that we were enemies of God. Right? We were dead in our sin. Paul says that in these ways you once walked, idolatry, foolishness, blindness, ignorance, uh, adultery, all the sins of the world, that's what you used to walk in. You've done everything to earn damnation, to earn hell. And yet God has given you grace. Um, and how you... John? I've got a question on the Klein thing. Sure. Um, I understand where it's coming from, I think, but I think the distinction is physical and spiritual. What do you mean by that? Physically, we live and act in sin. Spiritually, the Bible doesn't say we live and act in sin. It says we are dead in our trespasses. So in one sense, the Bible's saying that spiritually... We're as dead as those bones that Ezekiel had to speak to mm-hmm. through the Holy Spirit to bring to life. And yet physically, we, um, we do. We, we rebel in every way we can. So I, I would have a little trouble with him just saying that it's, it's demerited favor unless you're going to specify that you want to be that fine, but that fine will point on it. I think it's contrary to scripture to say that in our spiritual life we act um, actively against Christ. And we can't be both dead and active. Okay, I think I... No, that's, that's where I have confusion, I guess, is what I'm saying. Okay. He says. Okay. So John is, John is making the point that that yes, Scripture kind of presents us as enemies actively living against God, and yet we are spiritually dead in our sin. Therefore, we can't really be active because we're dead. Is that... Okay, and thus, John is saying, demerited favor is maybe a little bit out of sync with what the Bible is saying when we're dead in our in our trespasses. Kylie? That's a good. That's a good point. Good question. She asked if sin is passive. Matthew. Passive. It's passive in the sense that we are, um, by not being good enough, by not. It's it's not just that we commit things that we that we should be doing. It's that we're not perfect. We're, we don't follow God. We don't. We're not perfectly as I think J.C. Ralph said. We're not perfectly. In, literal step with the will of God mm-hmm. that is sin. So me just sitting here, even though I'm in church, I'm still sitting because I'm not perfect. Mm-hmm. Would you, so are you saying that there is a passive element of sin where it's just simply not being perfect is... Absolutely, yeah. It's a condition, right? I mean, it's, it's a, our fallen condition, maybe that is how you can understand it as passive. Mm-hmm. Right? It, like, Creation says that we were made very good, but the sin disordered that. It marred it. Mm-hmm. And Christ is restoring 
But there is still that being tied to the old man aspect of being the side of glory. Mm-hmm. But Christ is in the business of restoration. So when we are freed for freedom's sake in Christ, something in our imaging God, in our knowledge, our righteousness, that's in that sense the ability to do those things that please God, is freed up so that we might not be active in sin. The passive part remains because of our condition that's being restored by Christ, but we are freed up in the Spirit to do those things which honor God, that the Spirit produces in us, that we call the fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. That- yeah, I think... I'll get to Jonathan, and then I'll maybe tie some threads together. Jonathan? Based on what I've heard here, I can basically piece together that sin is both active, we actively sin, we actively lie, we actively commit adultery, we actively disrespect our fathers, spouses, everybody in authority. Yeah. And also passive, because we're not in sync with God, we're out of sync, and that all, and when you're out of sync with something that that literally can make the universe worse, it's impossible. To yeah. So perhaps the Bible has a couple of different ways of talking about sin. One is it talks about our. I don't want to say status. I want to say. Our condition, maybe, um, because there's corruption that comes from the fall. There is a brokenness after the fall, where, like Charlie was saying, the image of God that was very good has been twisted, broken, snapped, shattered, whatever you know adjective you want to throw out there. The image of God is is broken, and thus there is a we are living in a condition of that brokenness, um, which means that. Outside of Christ, we will always choose to actively commit sin because of that condition. Because we're acting in accordance with our nature, which is sinful and corrupt and marred and condemned. Um, So I think you can still talk about demerited favor, John, because there's still that active element of it where, even as Matthew said, right, we're still in sin even if we're just sitting here do nothing um, because we are not perfect. We are not where we should be. We have fallen short of the glory of God um, and we continue to actively rebel against the Lord with every thought, action, and and, and emotion or feeling or whatever. Uh, I saw Brett and then... And I think it's just key to remember why were we dead? Death is punishment for sin. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, and that's the deep narrative. And we can talk about what that what the ramifications are for ongoing sin, but that death itself is the judgment for sin. That's the demerit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brett's point is that the judgment for sin, the punishment is death. The original sin of, of Adam was the demeriting act that earned death for us. Um, so anything that happens that the Lord has that does towards us that is not in accordance with what we've earned, right, doesn't treat us like our sins deserve, that's demerited favor. Does that make sense, John? Does that? Oh, yeah. If you go back to Adam, yeah, it's, it's demerited is just another way of saying fall. Mm-hmm. I 
Okay. He fell. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. And that's why the second Adam came and undid that. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's... You know what I think helps clarify that? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Christ gave us eternal life. That's our position in Christ, which will never change. Our condition down here, we're up and down, up and down. We, we, we're tempted, we sin, or we overcome sin. But I think that really helps us. Our condition, our condition here and our position there never changes. Yeah, I think. Oh, let me get to Michelle. You, you had your hand up. I, I think the only thing I might add is that after our receive the grace and the Holy Spirit is working in us and we believe any good that I do is all from Christ. It's still not from me. It's the Holy Spirit working in me and Jesus. And so I still am not earning anything. Right. Um, yeah. Because we're not we're not meriting anything. Because even now, even though we have the Spirit, even our best works are still marred by bad intentions. You know, imperfect following through. We then feel pride after we've done a good thing. Like all these things, we're still dealing with sin. We're still dealing with this body of corruption so that even our best works, Isaiah says, are filthy rags. Um, that's not to say that the Lord is not pleased with them, but he's pleased with them because he has perfected them through Christ. Um, Jonathan? So you've been talking about the merit of favor a lot, and I just looked at his watch. And then I was like, so allow me to bring up a real world example, you know, a physical example of a married thing. Okay. Like your dog breaks its leg or your watch breaks or something. Instead of just replacing it, you fix it. You wait, you heal your dog. You take care of it while it's hurt. Mm-hmm. What the hey has it done to deserve it? <laughs> That's a good point, Jonathan. Yeah. It deserves it in that it doesn't deserve it, but you love it Mm -hmm. and you have elected to care for the dog or the watch, just like God has elected his people. Yeah. Of course, you know, the dog maybe hasn't done anything to deserve it, but it's your dog. It's your watch. Of course, you would want to fix it if you could. Um, so I'm not I'm not super concerned if we call it unmerited favor or demerited favor. I'm not necessarily trying to say we we have to call it demerited favor or else. Um, it's just a wrinkle that I want to throw in there because I think it's important when you start to ask questions like, was there grace before the fall? Because I think that will turn on how you define grace. If you call grace unmerited favor, I think there's enough wiggle room to say, yeah, sure, there's grace before the fall. What did Adam deserve? What did Adam do to deserve being created? What did Adam do to deserve being created good? Or to be created in fellowship with the Lord? What did Adam deserve to be put into the garden? Or to be given all the trees to eat? Or the authority over every beast. Or the authority. Or what did Adam deserve do to deserve being put in a covenant of works where the conditions are, hey, don't eat that tree and you'll live forever. <laughs> it's, it's not a difficult condition. God could have made it a lot harder for Adam to earn eternal life. He didn't. He just cut down a tree. Yeah. Well, maybe don't cut it down. I think the point is like, 
you have all of these trees. It's this one, this one tree in the midst of a forest of them that you can't eat. Literally, go and pluck any fruit. You can have all of them except for that one. And, of course, right, man falls because... It's, maybe it's human nature, but the serpent is introduced, he tempts, and after that, right, all we want is the one tree we can't have. God gives us everything, and yet we still want the one we're not allowed. Um, so if you're defining grace as unmerited favor, you could say that outside of the covenant of works itself, which is a covenant of works, all of that being created, being put into the garden, fellowship with the Lord, given all the tools necessary to to complete the, the covenant of works, the, you could call that all grace. If you call grace demerited favor, then you wouldn't talk about grace before the fall because Adam has not done anything actively to deserve the opposite. Right? Adam has not sinned. He has not demerited God's favor. He hasn't earned it, but neither has he demerited it by rebelling, by sinning, by spitting in God's face. That doesn't happen until the fall. Because at the fall, now Adam has demerited God's favor. And all of his descendants afterwards. You would still call everything that God does before the fall goodness. God is pleased and good freely to give Adam life, to put him in the garden, but you wouldn't call that grace. So it's not that, you know, God doesn't do things that Adam doesn't deserve. It's, do we call it grace? Well, how do you define grace? And the reason why I tell you all that is because this is one of those debates where people start to argue about, well, was there grace before the fall or not? Well, back up a step. How do you define grace? If you want to call it demerited favor, you'd say it's goodness. If you want to call it unmerited favor, yeah, you could call it grace before the fall. Does that make sense? Or am I, am I just blabbering? Charlie? Did you just say a second ago that Adam didn't merit anything before the fall? Or that he didn't? Not outside of the covenant of works. He didn't merit being created. Right. He didn't merit being created in the image of God. So does he have unmerited favor with God then? I think you can call it that, yeah. If you call grace demerited favor, you wouldn't call it grace. You would call it God's goodness towards an undeserving creature. It's just... It's a, we oftentimes talk of grace as like anonymous, uh, <coughs> we say favor, we could also say peace. Is that fair? Would you call grace peace? Peace with God, describing the relationship. Because favor is a disposition, it's not just something that's abstract in the ether it's the relationship that God maybe maybe are like talking about it unilaterally just the disposition of God towards man having peace towards man I would call I would call that I would call that a If it's a if it's a hierarchical tree, I call it grace, and then peace with God is flows from grace. Is is the is the? Um, I wouldn't say it's synonymous. Is the favor an active thing? Absolutely. So it's an active favor. Favor is it's it's a disposition of the Lord towards His children, and that flows into everything He does. Everything that God does for His children, for His elect, is gracious. Because it's towards undeserving sinners who have unmerited or demerited favor. Yeah. And it's 
for their good. It just it just seems. It's, I mean, like just thinking about it now, it seems interesting that it's something that God had towards mankind, which is affected by the fall, but it's like it's immovable. It's sort of it's a part of his character. He has had this disposition towards man, which is noted in the covenant of redemption, that does not change. Just like regardless, like when you say unmerited, that means that it's unaffected by what man has done. And it has been there since the beginning. And we describe it, we're, descri- we're trying to describe it based off of actions post-fall. But it's like, it's, it's this constant disposition. Is that fair? I will throw one wrinkle. We're only talking about it this side of the fall. Because, I mean, that, like, that's important, but how Adam disrupted it. Mm-hmm. But he actually didn't affect it. Because God continued to fulfill the promise, which was to actively be in, be favorable one way towards mankind, regardless. Does that make sense? So then why would people go to hell? That's a good question. That's, that's the wrinkle, is... Even before the fall, the Lord had chosen some and passed over others. Which means that his grace is not equal to all mankind. No, 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 of course not. So, in that sense, no, Adam didn't really change anything. Because the Lord's attitude towards the elect was the same regardless of the fall or not. Or or more, more specifically... Not that it didn't change, but that it was always set. Because he set the covenant of redemption before creation. He, I guess that's what I was trying to say. Is that his, his disposition towards the elect has been established. Since, like, Christ was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. It's impossible for, for grace not to have been in existence before the fall, before creation. Because it is an attribute of God. True. Yeah, it's part of God's character. Um, but a part of his character that we see more fully on this side of the fall. Because well, I think we talked about this um, a few weeks ago, right? Why start with the covenant of works? Part of that is because the covenant of works demonstrates God's justice, but the covenant of grace demonstrates his grace, right? These are both aspects of God's character, but... We see them more fully and different. Part of the problem is that we're talking about eternal things that we experience through history. um, And we're trying to be precise with how we define terms that we see Scripture using. We're trying to understand Scripture and how it's talking about different things. So that when Paul talks about grace in in Romans, right, we're talking about a, a favor that we have done everything... To, to earn the opposite of, right? God treats us like our sins don't deserve. Um, that was not a sense. God treats us... I don't remember. You know, you know the verse I'm talking about, right? <laughs> John? Um, I think probably one thing that will help solve most of this is if we remember historical redemption uh, philosophy in the Reformed teaching. And that is, when you talk about grace... You also have to be aware, on the other hand, what point in time, since we're time-bound, are you talking? 
because it's a little bit different when it's just the Trinity and they're declaring what they're going to do in time mm -hmm. than it is for us today after all these years and history links to all these covenants when we get to this point or not. Might just make it, I don't know, in my mind, that makes it easier if we remember historical redemption and how the changes are, because then our verbiage should change along the same lines. Sure. Here's, let me rephrase what you just said, is, is our only point of understanding God's character is how he acts in history. We don't have an experience of God outside of history. Outside of the things he's done and said, right? So when he doesn't says things, we we come into contact with his character. We see who he is, but it's it's through the lens of what he's done in history. So, so that's why, right? When we're talking about grace, we're like, okay, so what about before or after the fall? Um, obviously, there's we're talking about God's character that doesn't change, regardless of what's happening in history. But we're we're learning about it through the things that happen in history. Brett, you're going to solve all of our problems? I just, I'm trying to bring it all together. There's a, there's a danger when theologians say because something is true of God, he always acts that way towards all people. Right? The problem is, God is great. As, as Gary said, grace is part of who God is. That does not mean he shows his grace to all men. So that grace is wrath. God is wrathful. That does not mean he shows his wrath to all men. He will not show me wrath. So you have to say, how does God manifest himself to a particular people in a particular time? And this is really important because when it comes to Jesus, if God shows, if the Father shows the Son grace, that means he did not truly earn heaven. And, and now we don't actually have a just God. And so that's why all these, how does he manifest himself to a particular people at a particular time? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. How the Lord, just because it's true of God, I'm going to summarize what Brett said. Just because it's true of God does not mean that He shows that equally to all people. Right? God is gracious, but He's not. He doesn't show that to everybody. Some are are reprobate. Some receive His wrath because God is also wrathful and just. But just because He's wrathful and just does not mean that He shows wrath to every single human either. I think this is why this is why covenant theology is so important because this is the, the covenants are the boundaries to understand how the Lord is treating a particular people. Right? We are in a covenant of grace. That means we are never afraid of God's wrath. He will not show his wrath to us because we are in a covenant of grace. Likewise, we never have to worry about earning something from God because we're not in a covenant of works. We're not in a covenant of works. We can't earn righteousness. We can't earn life. Therefore, we're not trying to. As soon as you start trying to, you've misunderstood what covenant you're in. Jonathan, what's up? So, I'm not trying to have a Mr. Pastor Brett or anything. Okay. But he said that God shows grace to a certain group of people and wrath to a certain group of people. But, but as you probably remember, I talked to you last Sunday, and you said that to some extent he shows grace to all people by allowing them to join his family. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't not be in a family and get all the benefits of being in a family. If you do, that's just crazy. And, showing, and the leader of that family is giving him a lot of grace. 
but God gives everybody grace, like you said, by allowing them to join his family. That's like if you're a if you're somebody and you don't have a family, and then this person offers to let you join his family. I don't see why you would take the offer. So yeah, you're hitting on a good point because here's here's another wrinkle, right? Is there's ways that the Lord shows favor to all of mankind, like Charlie was talking about, but it's it's not for salvation, right? God shows saving grace to the elect, and that He not only offers them the chance to join His family, but He says, "Well, I don't care what you're going to say because you're going to say no because <laughs> of sin," right? People will always say no to God's free offer of the gospel. Um, unless God does something in their hearts. So that's what I was talking about, Jonathan, was God freely offers the gospel to everybody, um, and that's part of what we would call his common grace, which is what we mean, what we mean by that is saying God shows a certain level of grace to all people. He freely offers the gospel to all people. That does not mean that he then works in their hearts regenerates them, brings them into union with Christ, and saves them. It just means that he offers it to all people, regardless of their stance towards him. So that's what you mean when you say in the prayer of the church, we pray for a common grace blessing, especially in areas of Africa and Asia, because for some reason the gospel isn't as common there. Oh, the gospel is definitely common. It's just much more... Repressed and much more attacked, um, at least outwardly. But there, there are plenty of Christians in Africa and Asia. They're just they're they're struggling because they're being persecuted. Why is there more persecution down south than uh, in areas that weren't colonized? I'm guessing that it might be because they be because most of Africa wasn't colonized by Europe, but like. You'll find Christianity not under heavy-duty attacks in Australia, but in Southern Asia, South America, and Middle Africa and the area of Africa facing the Atlantic Ocean. Christianity is especially rare. And I'm guessing that might be because the Europeans didn't get there as fast. But, I mean, like, Christianity still gets over there just not as quickly. I think you're asking a socio-historiological question um, that I do not have an answer to. It's a good question. Good thoughts. Um, I think for to wrap up today, because we're out of time again, um, we see common grace, Matthew 5.45. Jesus says, For he makes the sun, his son, to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Um, in other words... The foundation for common grace is the Noahic Covenant, where the Lord promises to never destroy the earth again until the last day. That's God's common grace. Because God promises to all mankind, I will not destroy the world until the last day, up until which time you have the opportunity to repent and be saved. That's, that's God's common grace to all people. And towards that end, right? he works in history. He is involved with with nations and with individuals. He is providential. He's controlling everything. Um, That's all part of his common grace. When we talk about his special saving grace, though, we're talking about his favor towards his elect, which is much more than, I'm just going to give you opportunity to repent. It's, I'm going to change your heart. 
I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to give you my favor. I'm going to make you righteous. I'm going to give you a spot at my table. And I'm going to give you eternal life. Because my son died for you. That's, that's God's saving grace. Um, and because we're Calvinists, we love to talk about irresistible grace. We love to talk about um, unconditional election, um, you know, limited atonement. All these things are part of that difference between common grace and saving grace. Uh, tulip. So, I hope that helps <laughs> clear up some things about grace. Um, just to wrap up, we, so we talked about grace as unmerited favor. You could maybe go a little bit further and push it to call it demerited favor. Um, there's common grace and there's saving grace. And at the end of the day, we are in a covenant of grace. So next week, Lord willing, we will talk about the covenant of grace and what on earth that means. Uh, so let me finish this off. Okay. Before the creation, it was unmerited favor. And then... Just slightly before the fall, it was merited favor. And then after the fall, it was demerited favor. I'm not sure you would want to tinker with the thing. I don't think you want to define it differently based on where you're talking about it. But I mean, like, Adam didn't do anything to create, to be created. He just exactly. Created. Exactly. Because God wanted something on earth. Not sure why. But you could call that you could call that either goodness, or you could call that grace, and it depends on how you define grace. If you define grace as demerited favor; it's it's goodness. I suppose that it could be both of them because, like, it could be unmerited favor. Adam did nothing to be created; he wasn't even created yet. And it could also be demerited favor. Jesus came and gave his life for us, even though we didn't really deserve exactly the opposite. I would still want to define it the same, whether you're talking about it before the fall or after the fall. So we're just talking about terms and how we define them, not God's stance. Right? God's stance towards Adam is clearly one of, of goodness and of love and of favor that Adam did not deserve. It's just, did he do things actively to, to undeserve them? No. So, so what do you do with that? You could call it that. But, but after the fall, it was demerit. I'm sorry. Um, we can talk about it some more and maybe try to clear it up. Um, but we're out of time, so let's pray and uh, prepare for worship. Lord God, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Um, we're still learning. We're still growing. We're still coming to terms with everything that you've done. And Lord, we thank you that it doesn't rest on us. That we don't have to get it all right. We don't have to believe all the perfect things in order to be saved. But instead, we just have to rest on Christ. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that we're, we're saved by grace through faith. Father, may you continue to grow us as we come to worship you this morning. May you prepare our hearts for that, to meet you, uh, and to speak with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.